Have you been zombified by academia? They're trying. They're trying every day. Have you been zombified by academia? I mean, obviously, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Why, why, why? How have you been zombified? Oh, I mean, I uh, spent a huge amount of my life, um, you know, doing research with the hope and the goal of, um, you know, like being able to have a life where I get to like do that as my living. And academia is the only real option for that. That's what they say. That's what they say say in all the brochures. That's right. When you get starting in high school, you get the little brochures (laughs) that say academia, your only real option. (laughs) It does kind of feel like that. So So, um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, To be honest, like, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that, um, you know, I am definitely in the system for sure. Um, But I also, you know, I have tried to maintain some level of like, you know, not just being driven by like, okay, do the research that's most likely to get the job or the promotion or whatever. I've, I've tried to you know, keep it like these are the things I think are important, are interesting. And um, yeah, I mean, sometimes that's been risky because I've done a lot of really interdisciplinary stuff that doesn't really fit in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I think I could have just as well ended up homeless as a professor because, <laughs> you know, it was oh. like, yeah, I mean, maybe somebody will want a, you know, interdisciplinary researcher like me or maybe not. I mean, like if, a, if, you, if ASU didn't exist, like, oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe my life would be very different. It would definitely be very different. Obviously, so that's probably true. Yeah, so, yeah. So, do you think it's a cult? Is academia a cult? Is academia a cult? Um, I am required to to say no. <laughs> that's that's right. That is the, that is the correct answer. Um, so, um, but uh, that's. We're still, that's what we're talking about today, right? Yeah. So we have a a really awesome guest today, um, Nicole Barbaro, who is the director of communications for the Heterodox Academy, um, a recovering academic. She she escaped from the cult, essentially, right? She's like the the, the non cult of. Right. She escaped from, yes, whatever (laughs) whatever it's called. (laughs) Um, But she's only kind of partially escaped, right? Because she's still like teaching and she's still like. Yeah. Working, uh, so the Heterodox Academy, what is it? Uh, well, so we talk a little bit about it, right? It's a organization that's dedicated to kind of you know maintaining like free inquiry and stuff in academia, which which is cool. Um, and yeah, and she's been doing stuff in science communication for a long time. She reads all the books. Um, she's got a couple substacks. Um, so I guess she's really an example of. Um, you know, how you can be in academia, do research, and then decide to go a different direction and be successful. And um, so, you know, we talk a little bit about how academia kind of zombifies us um, and then what some of the alternatives are. And, you know, like all of the things kind of tie in together in terms of like, you know, how how we can actually embrace you know, viewpoint diversity and how that actually ties in with not being zombified by academia. And I don't know, I found that it was a really, it was a really interesting conversation. I mean, it was like also 
maybe of all the podcasts we've ever done, was almost like the most like personal mm. in a way. Okay. Because it was like really about like the journey through academia, which, you know, I've like I've done that. Nicole has done that. And yeah, it was just it was very, very real and practical for me. What was your favorite part? Uh so many favorite parts. I mean, I think like when um, we just like really started kind of breaking down like, you know, like how does academia perpetuate the norms of academia? And then like how, do, how does the next generation get pulled into that? Like kind of an- analyzing that. I thought that that was that was really cool and fun and just, you know, it tied together a lot of threads for me and got me thinking. How about you? Oh, it was Certainly not the first 10 minutes where you guys were talking about Twitter. <laughs> so people may just want to, you know, if you're like me and don't care about Twitter. <laughs> but if you're like Athena and love Twitter, then you could play the first 10 minutes on repeat. I, I mean, I it's not that I love Twitter. It's that I appreciate it. Um, but I also, I'm, I mean, I'm not. Okay, no, no more Twitter. No more Twitter. Okay, There's right, enough. We'll stop but I will say, Twitter. actually, I got to say that this was a conversation that like, was a snowball conversation where like I felt like I got more and more into it. And then at the end where I was like, shoot, we're like almost out of time. Like I could have kept going for an hour. So my favorite bit is sort of at the end when we were talking about like how to get diverse viewpoints and how to bring different viewpoints into the cult of academia so that everybody, (laughs) because, you know, I... I left the cult um, like after my first year in grad school and um, and I guess I'm kind of I've been sort of sucked back in in some strange way. But um, yeah, I don't know, just this sort of idea of how how we can turn the cult of academia into something that's a little more representative of the whole world. Uh, and I think that was really fun. So so my favorite yeah. part was was that. And so, yeah. Awesome. Well, Let's hear from this week's fresh brain, Nicole Barbaro. Cool. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself. Welcome to Zombified, Nicole. It is so great to have you here. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and um, what has brought you to Zombified today? Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, you know, I uh, have a background in psychology, so I'm a PhD psychologist by training. Uh, I studied evolution and human behavior during my PhD. I spent a couple years as a research scientist in the nonprofit area. Um, and then decided that I didn't actually like doing research that much after 10 years of training for it. And now I work in communications. So I'm the director of communications for Heterodox Academy. Uh, so still working in the higher education space, which I am super passionate about, but just in a little bit different role than I spent a lot of time training for. So it's been a fun ride the last few years for sure. 
Awesome. And uh, yeah, I thought it would be super fun for us to talk to you here because, you know, I follow you on Twitter and I've like noticed, you know, over the years, like you're always doing interesting science communication stuff and you're always kind of, it seems like you're, you're always like pushing the envelope a little bit, challenging the way people are doing things, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, what if we do this new thing and how can we incorporate these new things? So, um, so you've definitely been on my, been on my radar. So I was really <laughs> excited when you said yes to being on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this. I mean, I've just been, you know, Twitter's always a fun area. It wasn't somewhere that I was actually planning on getting on at any point. And someone in grad school, one of my uh, friends was like, hey, you know, like there's all these really cool scientists like on Twitter. And, you know, this is where the conversation's happening. You should get on there. And honestly, I got on in 2017 and it has led to so many interesting opportunities for me. I don't know if I'd be in the same spot career wise, honestly, if I hadn't joined Twitter and also, as a result, I get to do fun podcasts and talk to interesting people and meet so many awesome people that I never would have met if I was not on Twitter. So as much as we all like to complain about Twitter, it has led me to many cool opportunities. So yeah, I, I have a similar experience where like, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with yeah. it because yeah, so many people who I never would have met, never would have connected to, podcasts I never would have been on, people who I never would have like, you know learned about mm-hmm. um my uh, the illustrator for this podcast neil smith who's amazing i found him through twitter and um not only does he illustrate the podcast but he's like a really good friend of mine now so um yeah uh it's it's kind of hard to like if you sort of think like okay what if you took twitter out of my life like how would it be different like the alternate universe game right like mm-hmm. what is the alternate universe of my life without Twitter, it would be really different, actually. Yeah, I have gone back and forth, especially recently, which is Twitter's been a little bit of like a technical crazy place in the last yeah. few months, as most people who are on it know. Um, and I've gone back and forth. I've kind of my use of Twitter and like how present I am on the platform has kind of waned a little bit over the last few months, just kind of on and off. But I feel like, especially for me as someone who kind of, as a lot of people say, left academia, like didn't go the tenure track professor route after PhD. Um, I feel like I would, that's like my entry point still into that academic space with so many people that I met over the years, especially during grad school and, you know, for the few years that I was doing more professional research in higher ed. So whenever I think about getting away from it, I feel like it's like, that's the last tie that I have to more of this like professional academic space. Cause I feel like that's where faculty are. And everyone's like, let's go over to LinkedIn. I'm like, I like LinkedIn. It's fine, but it's, it's not the same thing. You know, the, it's not, yeah. it's not quite the same conversation that's going on on LinkedIn, but it'd be, it'd be a very yeah. weird experience not having that option to be on Twitter. Yeah. Dave, would your life be really different if you'd never gone on Twitter and then gotten off a week later? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, <laughs> it would not. Uh, I mean, it like not at all. Um, I mean, no. I guess maybe I met like three people, um, and so that's cool. Um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but no. As I hear you guys talk about it, I sort of just like zoning out. I'm like, I'll just, I'll just chime in once the Twitter stuff, once, once we're done with the Twitter part of this show. <laughs> if we did a whole, Twitter, it wouldn't be here. So, you know. yeah, we did a whole episode um, on the Twitter apocalypse. So um, that was, yeah, Dave, you were very, very patient while we talked about Twitter for an hour and a half or whatever. 
<laughs> oh yeah, no. I mean, I guess if Twitter didn't exist, people would still meet people, right? Like it's like, but maybe not. I mean, I don't know. Like, so maybe I should have. Maybe I should have spent two weeks on Twitter. But we'll never know. The world will never know. So yeah. So, so Nicole, um, you you know you mentioned that like a lot of things are are going on on Twitter in mm. the academic space that kind of keep you there. Are there are there specific things that you're like this is super valuable and helpful and um, you know I really want to be a part of this or um, have have things been kind of changing for you in that space in terms of you know where you're putting your energy? I know you have like a sub sub stack. You have two sub stacks, right? Yeah, right yeah. Now. I have a lot of online presence. Um, I mean, Twitter, especially in grad school, it was completely invaluable during grad school of just like being able to one kind of create your own voice in the academic space. Because like grad students, it's really hard to get a footing. Like you don't necessarily have like, you know, these big research projects yet. You know, people don't know who you are. It's another way to professionally network because for whatever reason, I think faculty and grad students have really gravitated toward Twitter, you know, probably in the last like 10 years or so to really, you know, share out their papers, um, share conference, you know, events, kind of live tweet during conferences. And it's a way that you can get other work that you're doing out there and kind of make a name for yourself in that space. And I really credit like, honestly, (laughs) so much of my career progression to just the opportunities at Twitter and like the networking and the visibility that the platform has given me across my kind of personal and professional career. And I find it so valuable for one, just like hearing about new research. You can follow all sorts of interesting people, you know, journal table of content alerts are probably one of the most boring things (laughs) that most people Mm want to read. And there's just so much journal information coming out that, you know, it's hard to really sift through everything. So I think Twitter is a great repository for interesting new research. You know, people post their preprints as we know, and we can probably talk about, you know, like traditional publishing is, I think, pretty outdated and not really serving the goals of science that well anymore. So I think Twitter is a little bit closer to uh, how we can actually use social media platforms to advance research and get to know what's going on in our field, but also just the networking aspect of it. Um, I mean, I just, I've met people that like, I would probably be too scared at a conference originally to like go up to and talk to, you know, kind of the big wig scientists. And then you just see them on Twitter, just like making jokes and it really like humanizes people as well. And I think that just kind of opens up an academic network um, for me over the years that has just made it a much more comfortable place than like being at a conference and trying to like figure out how to like insert yourself into someone's conversation at the happy hour or something that's going on, which is always a terrible experience for grad students the first couple of years. So, I mean, (laughs) it's just opened up a whole new world and just hearing about what's going on. It's also a great place to keep up on just like news, you know, working in the kind of, I would say like the professional side of higher education kind of more as like an industry as I do now. Um, It's a great place to kind of keep up on kind of the the drama, the news, what's the happenings of what's going on across higher ed. So um, it's, it's a really interesting kind of like news curation platform for me at this point. So even if I'm not, if I go through phases where I'm not tweeting as actively, I still look at it and can see kind of what's going on. So it's been super useful for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask a little bit more about the, the sort of transition for you, right? Because mm-hmm. You know, you were really, really active in academic space for a long time. And like, you know, you were, weren't you leading like the communications for HBAS? And like, you did a lot of, a lot of stuff that was, you know, very leadershipy, right? In, mm-hmm. in academia. And, um, 
it seems like uh, I'm guessing there was some process, some transition where you're like, mm, I don't know about this. And so, you know, what was it that like went into that? And like, are there broader patterns that you sort of see with, um, you know, the transitions that are happening in academia? I know, you know, a lot of people have been leaving on a lot of different levels. Um, and, you know, like how are like what are the ways that we, you know, as academics and I know you're more on the professional side as opposed to like the research side now, but you're still in academia, mm -hmm. right? Like how how does the whole academic enterprise zombify us? And like, is that um, are is that changing? Um, are we becoming less zombified or yeah. are we becoming differently zombified? You know, wh what's your sense of, of what's going on with that? And like, how does that tie in with your journey? I love that question because for me, I think, you know, my journey, I went to college, because, you know, you're supposed to go to college and I've always loved school. Like, I don't think most people that end up doing a PhD end up doing a PhD because they don't like school and like learning and, you know, everything that comes with school. Like if you're going to spend 10 years in college or more, you probably generally like what you're doing in that space. So I always found school just like a very comfortable spot for me. I enjoyed college. And to be honest, I didn't really know what to do after college. Like it was kind of, I almost feel like I stumbled through <laughs> all the way to the end of my PhD for a while because I didn't really actually know what I was going to do as like a career. Um, I went to college and studied things that I thought were interesting, which was psychology. And then I was like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. And then I started working in a research lab. You know, a professor was like, hey, why don't you, you know, start working in my lab? You know, we, and I think I spent, we were still doing like paper surveys at the time. So I spent weeks and weeks of my first time as a lab research assistant, just double checking data entry <laughs> into a spreadsheet. And I thought it was super cool. And I was like, wow, I can, I'm actually like contributing to something. So then I was just like, hey, why not do a PhD? You know, why not just keep going to school and just kind of stumbled through into that. And then during PhD, the main thing that you're taught is, okay, you're getting a PhD, then you go become a faculty member. Like that's the next step. And for so many people, that's the only step that's presented to them. So I think the further you kind of get <laughs> into academia, especially once you start graduate school, the options in the conversation about what you're supposed to do after become incredibly narrow. And it's you have to do everything possible and sacrifice all these things to become a faculty member. And I think now, you know, I don't know if the conversation actually is broadening or I just know that the conversation's happening and I know how to get into that space. But I feel like people now are realizing, hey, there's other things you can do. Like I love education. I wanted to stay in education. And there are so many different things that you can do in education. Like if anyone's been to a university, there's a lot going on that's not just teaching and research. And, you know, there's a lot more employees than just tenure track faculty members at a university. Um, so really once I got to the end of my PhD, you know, there was a lot of like personal things involved where I just like wasn't willing to like play the game of put out a hundred job applications, move to whatever random city decides to offer you a job and then, you know, stay there for a couple years. You know, once you have a job, it's easier to get a job as everyone says, and then you can apply and like kind of have more choice. And at the time I was like 27 or 28 finishing up my PhD. I'm like, I don't, I just want to go somewhere and like finish, you know, like I want to have a place and a house and, you know, set up my life. And my, uh, husband, now my husband, you know, like he had a career and everything that, you know, we had to consider. So there was just like so much more into the conversation of how to become a faculty member that, you know, the idea is just like, 
so, you know, uh, sacrifice everything and whoever you're with will hopefully follow you and understand. I'm just like, well, that's not really a realistic conversation or a realistic pathway for most people. Um, so I just started kind of branching out and I really was like stumbling in the dark. I didn't have anyone in my department. I didn't really know anyone to kind of advise on like, what do you do if you being a faculty member isn't even a practical or practical option, or you just don't want to do that. Um, so I, I kind of found my way and that's really where I started kind of engaging in the conversation online of like, just trying to share my experience of like, you know, I, I write some blog posts about like, Hey, what to do in an interview? You know, what did, what do you do if you realize you want to do research anymore after you train to be a researcher? Um, so I've just been trying to like share that conversation. And I think kind of the, um, public conversation, and by public, I mean online, mostly on Twitter, has really like branched out in recent years after realizing that, you know, not everyone's going to be a faculty member. Most PhD students probably don't become a faculty member. So what does that conversation look like? What are those paths? So really just like getting out of that narrow view and just branching out into like mm-hmm. all the millions of other possibilities there are. Yeah. So so what are the things you think like in academia, in the process of graduate school mm-hmm. that kind of constrain those options that let zombify us, you know, as like, you know, into the, these pathways and, you know, how much of that is kind of like historical stuff that's just kind of been perpetuated because the people in the system have the same beliefs versus, mm-hmm. um, you know, are there other processes that are, that are going on that like, you know, within academia kind of keep that, that like sort of single minded approach of like what you should do. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things that are going on in that respect. One, when you're a graduate student, you're surrounded by a bunch of faculty members. So you have like, you know, the selection effect problem going on that all of your immediate advisors and people that are giving you career advice and just general advice and whose lifestyles you actually see modeled in front of you every day are all people who that narrow subset of people who made it to that tenure track position. So you just don't have any other experience. Um, and honestly, for me in graduate school, a really eye opening thing was just starting to date my now, my now husband, who was an engineer, he went to school for engineering, graduated, got a job at, you know, a big corporation as engineers do. And then I just started to meet people, none of whom (laughs) had a PhD and were in academia. And I'm just like, there's this whole world of adults out here <laughs> that are doing other things after being surrounded by <laughs> everyone who's, which sounds so obvious, but when you're in, I mean, you know, graduate school, you are working seven days a week in the lab, surrounded by people, you're on campus. Like there's very little space for outside perspectives on life and outside views of what life looks it like. It kind of sounds like you're describing a cult right now. <laughs> you know, honestly, once you get out of it <laughs> and you look around, you're like, you just have a bunch of people telling you the same thing over and over and over. Like you need to publish in these journals, you need to do these certain things, and then you become a faculty member. And if you don't get it right away, well, it's normal. You know, we normalize the sacrifice. We normalize how long it takes because now it's like people are on the job market for what, like three years on average now, I think before they maybe get a 10 year track offer. Um, I was on the job market for like seven or eight years. I had like, you know, all these like postdocs and, you know, research positions and it was, yeah, a long ass time. Yeah. <laughs> so. We really normalize like that. Be, that and we normalize it because it has become normal now. Like the, and this is kind of another like kind of zombified like carryover from 
you know, I, I love reading about higher ed history, especially working in this area and higher ed, you know, we have a lot of things in place. So some of our professors that we're learning from have been professors for decades and their experience on the job market may have been, Hey, you put out a few applications, you know, your advisor puts in some calls and, you know, you get, you get a spot and then, you know, they always have, you know, these perfect little spots for your spouse who also happens to be an academic, you know, to just kind of follow you around. And I'm just like, that's not at all the reality of what the academic job market looks like now. And we have, you know, the past few years, we've actually had, we have data coming out. People are starting to track this stuff, which I think is super helpful. We can actually see the majority of people aren't going into faculty positions. I think the social sciences where we're from are still one of the areas that has a pretty high proportion of people going into academia. But if you look at other places like bio, biology, biomedical sciences, these area, faculty positions usually aren't the end point for these folks. You know, they, they go work in, in what we call industry, this broad term, that's everything but a tenure track position <laughs> at this point. You know, so we have kind of this carryover of this time when there wasn't this oversaturation. I don't even like that term actually anymore, but this oversaturation, I'm doing air quotes of PhDs in this field, you know, assuming that everyone wants to go into faculty positions. And we've just, because of all the competition, it's become normal to apply to like a hundred schools, which the applications are mind numbingly boring <laughs> to complete these applications. There's so much paperwork. And then we just are surrounded by all these people that are like, Hey, this is totally normal. It took me, you know, seven years, three years, five years, however many years. Oh, you just have to, you know, you know, hold out in, you know, these temporary positions that don't pay well for years and years on end. Just keep putting your life on hold because it's going to pay off. The sacrifice will pay off. And I just don't really like that narrative. Like, that works for some people and that's fine and that's great, but not everything's going to work for the same people. And for me, I'm like, I want a house. I want to go travel. I want to go do stuff. I want like kind of a steady nine to five ish kind of approach where I can like settle down and like live my whole life rather than just like one piece of it. So I don't know there, there's a lot in there. I mean, we can, we can really branch off <laughs> into areas. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, just from my experience, you know, I, I really wanted to have a family. And so I started having kids when I was in grad school. And then so I had two in grad school and then one as a postdoc. And then I spent, you know, like so many years like in, you know, these temporary positions and like moving around with, you know, two and then three small kids. And it was crazy. I mean, like mm. I look back at that and I'm like that, you know, like I did it, but like was that was that a good part of my life? No, you know, like <laughs> was it lived? I don't know. I mean, I, I I could look at my life now and say, yeah, it's nice having you know a steady job and like I could do stuff like this podcast now and and all that. Um, but uh, I mean, it does seem like there's, you know, like I'm gonna say it seems like there's something wrong with the system, but like this also isn't just an issue of like academia because it's not like there is some overarching system for like, okay, let's make sure that the, you know, this country is set up so that people can have good jobs where they can have, <laughs> you know, like a decent quality of life and raise a family and not get totally screwed if they get into a car accident and have big medical bills, you know, like there's, <laughs> there's like a complete <laughs> lack of like, a you know, like, oh, let's set up systems so that people can thrive economically and professionally. So, um, 
yeah. So, I mean, there is kind of just like a, like all of these, you know, potential career directions that one could take, like still kind of subject to what the market forces are, like underlying, mm-hmm. you know, when and where you can get jobs and how will they pay and how much security they have. But, um, but yeah, academia is kind of weird in that, like, you have like no security, no security. You make very little money unless like you win big and get the tenure track job and then get tenure, tenure, right? So it's like a very winner take all kind of situation as opposed to like, you know, you advance and get, you know, a little more secure and a little more money as you go along. It's it's pretty different. Yeah. And then most of the people that do like make it and kind of get the the prize at the end of the long journey to that are the ones that have most of the platform of like what academia is and like what the job looks like. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like you did make it like you, you got there, but we forgot about like the 90% of people that, you know, think of how many people start grad programs. I know ASU is a large school. Think about how many people start that grad program. How many of them end up, you know, running a lab at a big, you know, R1 university maybe a few, like it's not, it's not a lot. So we just like forget the rest of that conversation. And I think that that was really illuminating for me on when, when I was trying to figure out like, and it was interesting, like all my direct advisors, it was a husband and wife team. And then it was another husband and wife team. So I had like two husband and wife team (laughs) faculty members, you know, trying to advise me on my career. And there was uh, one faculty member, Uh, Martha Escobar in our department, who was just kind of like, you know, an informal kind of mentor for me, like throughout grad school. I was like your TA for a while. We just kind of hit it off. And I remember she told me, she's like, you have to prioritize your whole life. And whatever that looks like for you, that's, you know, going to be fine. And she's like, let me know how I can help. Like, let's support that. And I remember that being such a helpful piece of advice. And she was telling me about all these different students that she's had over the years. And she's like, they're doing this now and they're doing this now. And it was all of these examples of most people who didn't get tenure track faculty positions because they just didn't want them, you know, and it didn't make sense for them and all these examples. And I'm like, we need, you know, some more people like that just to just open up the space because everything around the tenure track position just feels like a big, like black box you know, when you're in grad school, because you just mm-hmm. don't know. And just having one person just kind of like pop open the door for you and just be like, Hey, there's other things. Have you, have you looked over here? Have you just kind of explored this area and see what happens? So she was enormously helpful yeah. for me, like kind of realizing I'm like, okay, like maybe there's, there's more stuff to do here. So there's, there's just so much that we should talk about <laughs> for PhD yeah. students during graduate school to help them figure out like what makes the most sense for their careers and their lives. Dave, you so look like so you what makes the most sense for people's careers and lives? Well, I will give you the exact answer of what I think makes the most sense. Perfect. <laughs> you know, I think what is, I again, I don't know if I'm just realizing this now because like I've been in these conversations, you know, you, you realize something and then you start seeing it everywhere kind of thing. But I feel like there is just more conversation about what options there are. A lot of that, those conversations go into like kind of the UX and tech or tech field, you know, because that's like a big area, especially for like psychologists who understand human behavior. Well, you know, those skills and experimental uh, research skills with people 
are really valuable in technology um, is they obviously understand our behavior, I think, more than most psychologists do at this point of getting us on these apps like Twitter and getting us to endlessly scroll there for for hours on end. Um, don't don't forget creating free content so that yeah. we can oh, yeah. get everybody else in our network engaged with their platforms. Come, so. come on to these social networks as we just probably gave Twitter a free advertisement at the, be- <laughs> the beginning of this podcast. Right. Follow us on Twitter so you can read our free content. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. The whole thing's so silly. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think having these conversations of people just like sharing their stories, there was a lot of, there's a couple useful like organizations that are run by folks that were helpful for me during PhD. Um, and it was uh, beyond the professorate. So they're just kind of like two, um, they're two women led, I think they're nonprofits technically, um, but I think it's like mostly like one woman shows behind like the scenes there. But they just like share things of like helpful tips for your resume. Like, you know, they have people on, like I've written for their blog before about just like, here's, you know, what it looked like from PhD to a research scientist, like at a nonprofit when I first started. And those, just having those people, like following them on Twitter and just having them in my inbox, like passively for like a year, engaging when I wanted to and just understanding again, just seeing people share their stories, know what's going on. And I think a big hurdle though, which this took me, I've been out of my PhD program for over three years now, but like the feeling of kind of like failure that like, oh, I didn't make it. You know, everyone else made it. I didn't make it as a faculty member is like really hard to deal with for a long time because you, you invest so much time into your PhD, so much energy, you forego making money, <laughs> like good, decent money, like you forego your retirement fund and all these wonderful benefits that come if you just start working out of college. And then you just don't, you just don't do it. You just go do something else. And that like feeling of failure is like something that I think not as many people have really talked about. I think it's somewhat there in the conversation, but it's a little bit more vulnerable part of the conversation to to have for a lot of people, but there is kind of, and I think that's maybe why some of the conversation isn't public is because they feel like they kind of failed and they just kind of like disappear from the conversation, kind of Mm. disappear from the academic space. And, you know, then there's new people next year, new research and, you know, kind of people forget that, you know, Oh, that person was there, you know, Oh, remember they published a paper on something. Mm. Um, so it's, there's a lot of like mourning that comes along with it just because most people do their PhDs to, you know, advance and do research mm-hmm. and make a contribution and a big break and stuff. So there's just, mm-hmm. you got to figure out what's good for you while not listening to kind of those messages or trying to overcome those things where it's like, mm-hmm. you don't want to just like the sunk cost fallacy. You don't want to just keep putting time and energy into something just because you mm-hmm. already spent a lot of time doing it. So, well, and you know, when somebody leaves a cult, you have to just act like they never <laughs> existed in the first place. So it's bad for the cult. It's bad one for the, of the cult. rules. Yeah. Of the, <laughs> of the cult. Um, <laughs> I want to I want to dig in a little bit about mm-hmm. like you know why um why academia perpetuates itself in the way that it does like you know who who benefits from mm-hmm. that like why why does it keep happening you know like what like are are there are there specific play I know that you know quite a bit about sort of the business behind academia too so mm-hmm. so you know why why does it continue the way that it does? Who Who is the beneficiary of this zombification? This is such a fun question because I love looking at these things just by incentives. You know, as a psychologist, you know, we are complex animals, but we still just respond to incentives. What are the incentive structures within academia? And I think 
especially for uh, perpetuating, let's say we have PhD students coming to the program. We want to get them placed into faculty positions, tenure track positions. And the you know, a lot of the reasons why we do that is it looks good for the professor whose lab they're coming out of because that's the only way that you get the best PhD students is by showing that you're a successful professor. You know, you can help them publish, develop their research ideas. And that's a big selling point for professors trying to recruit people, especially at big universities of like, hey, 90% of my students have made it into a faculty position. Don't you want one to like come to my lab? So there is a benefit for the professor um, of, making their lab look good, which helps them recruit students. Um, it's great for the department, right? Because the department is also trying to recruit students as a whole, you know, beyond just each individual lab. But, you know, placement rates um, are one of the big things that uh, departments advertise, especially high-ranking departments. Uh, you know, academia is a hierarchical system full of, you know, all the way from the Ivies, you know, the research institutions, all the way down the hierarchical ladder, and so departments want to advertise that we can, you know, place our students there. Um, and if you have kind of those incentive structures in place where like a main valuable thing is perpetuating more PhDs um, that get faculty positions and everything's kind of structured around those things. Um, and then you have you know, again, the problem that the only people that are working in departments are people that have made it through all the sacrifice and the long road to become a professor. Um, so you have like that selection problem where they just don't know what else to say. Like, you know, I don't have that much advice for people like in big tech UX work because I don't have that experience. I don't know what to tell you. Like I can kind of tell you some broad, you know, things that I know, but I don't know much about that. Like I, I can tell you about the higher ed nonprofits and academic societies is that's kind of the area that I work in. Um, but professors, if you're around a bunch of professors, they know how to tell you how to be a professor. <laughs> and so they continue yeah. to do that. But so I just totally want to like nerd out with you right <laughs> now about this because um, if you like do like an analysis of like, you know, okay, what are the criteria for evolution via natural selection, right? You have mm -hmm. variation, you have heritability and you have differential fitness. And if you sort of look at it like from the perspective of, you know, professors having academic offspring, mm -hmm. right? Like, yes, you have heritability of like both, you know, research topics, but also like attitudes about <laughs> academia, right? All of those things get culturally transmitted. Um, there's definitely variation, right? And then there's differential fitness, right? Like professors that study different things and have different approaches and different beliefs and different norms that they're passing along um, will, some of them will create more academic offspring, <laughs> attract more academic offspring than others. So like, is there some like, you know, evolution, cultural evolutionary process where like you just like drawing in like the, the more the better you are at, you know, sending um, people to, you know, uh, having faculty jobs, um, the more you attract the really good students. But then you're also passing along the cultural ideas that this is the thing that you should be doing. And then it all just like, you know, amplifies the 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 sort of you know cultural infrastructure around academia yeah we have an absolute just arms race going on because you as you said with this like kind of evolution example you the students in your lab that are the best in this you know ability to be placed and get a job you know probably have 
you know, the best types of publications that, you know, we're valuing. And, I, feel, I gotta you know, just say, I feel so bad for anyone who's <laughs> listening to this, who like dropped out of grad school, like, cause it's like, it's essentially like we're saying, yeah, you guys, it's basically like you're dying alone academically <laughs> and your your genes die with you. So it's like No. <laughs> no, no, that's not at all. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. We'll get to the it's good not part like after. It's like it's like the I mean the point I was trying to make is just that the idea that you should be pursuing the tenure track position like that's getting inherited along mm. with these other things too right like it's I, I mean it's like a you know a, a gene that's just you know happens survival, to be on the like same the chromosome instinct. with another gene i don't know it's yeah, yeah right, it's like right the academic survival instinct gets sort of you know <laughs> something like it that it's built yeah. up because yeah you need it in yeah, order to I survive could. in academia yeah so. and then the students that ended up doing the right things you know, the right way, however we want to define that, end up getting those faculty positions with labs, with more students. And then we just end up with this arms race. Like, I mean, you, I mean, you've probably had this conversation with faculty, like across academia and in your department, but you know, faculty that got faculty jobs like 30 years ago, like probably wouldn't even be kind of competitive on today's job market. And that's just like the sad truth. Like if you look at folks that have, you know, the long tenured faculty in pretty much any department, if you like could look back to like, Hey, what'd your CV look like? You know, when you got this job, some of them didn't even have publications and you know, like, and that's just like an example of the arms race. Like when I, I had like over 10 publications before I got accepted into a PhD program, because that's the only way you can get into a PhD program. What? It's insane. It's ridiculous. You know? So like, and now like we're looking at postdocs, faculty have to have like, oh, you have to come in and do funded research. So you already have to have funded research somehow as a grad student to be able to come in here. And you have to have like these top level groundbreaking publications in like the best journals in the world to prove that you know how to do research. But you haven't even started a lab yet. Like it's it's all, it's, I think that evolution example is so fitting because it also just perpetuates that arms race of like the more and more qualifications, more sacrifices, like, people 30 years ago weren't waiting seven, eight years to get a 10 year track job like that, that, that wasn't what was going on. So it seemed like a viable career. Like you go to school, then maybe you do a year as a postdoc. I don't even think postdocs were really that normal until probably the last like 20 years probably. And now they've become like multiple postdocs. Now one postdoc's not good enough. Now you have to multiple postdocs. <laughs> like it's just, it's so much. And for at least what I view and a lot of people that have left academia, it's just like, it, there doesn't, the it's a high risk, high reward strategy. I would maybe say, you know, you can get it all, but I also feel like we're framing it as though like, this is kind of like med school where it's like, Hey, you dump like a quarter million dollars in, and now you're making at least a quarter million dollars a year to pay this stuff off. If you become, you know, a very high profitable doctor or surgeon, but academia like doesn't pay that much for all the years of like, lost income, lost investment. So like, I don't know, you look at some things and some schools are paying a lot. Some professors do make a lot of money, but like then that's not the norm. Like the norm starting salary for an assistant professor, it's like $70,000 or so. 
but you just dumped like a hundred grand in during programs and all this lost years of retirement and all these things and delaying, you know, families and homes and all sorts of things. And I'm just like, I feel like we've tipped a balance, but so many people have bought into the idea that this is the only path for doing research, for having interesting thoughts and kind of pursuing this like intellectual life that I think the lack of viewpoint diversity about like what PhDs can do has caused some of this problem in a way. Yeah. Well, let's jump into like the alternatives. Maybe, you know, I mean, so I think you not only do you know a whole bunch about other possibilities, but you mm. also work on this very issue of like how important <laughs> it is for us to have multiple perspectives. So, yeah. Um, yeah so, I mean, jump in wherever you want with this, but I think like, you know, we can start both talking about solutions and also we can talk about being zombified by like not having that, per, you know, the ability to look at things from different perspectives. Yeah. I think I'll jump in with some of like the happy <laughs> possible happy, pathways. Let's talk about happy pathways. <laughs> so we don't, as Dave said, you know, are all of our ideas <laughs> and genes are dying alone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, especially, you know, I know more about like kind of the social science area just because I know the skill set of those PhDs. But like I said, like other areas, like especially in biology, which has a lot of applications in medical science, like they, they've been you know, sending people over to industry and having a good time over there for a while. But in the social sciences and especially like the humanities, because the humanities is such like an academic thing to study. Like no one's like, who's hiring an art history professor that has like this very niche expertise, like probably not one besides the university, but like that doesn't mean you can't do stuff and still have a good time. So, I mean, in the social sciences, like big tech is probably, or just tech in general, like you don't have to go work at the Fang, Facebook, Google company. You don't have to go there. You can go other places. There's a lot of technology all around that you can work on and some really interesting companies and like products that you, if you really feel passionate about, like, wouldn't that be cool to help make those products and those offerings better? Um, so, I mean, at least for social sciences, like UX or user research is a huge pathway that's being talked about right now. Um, it's been an unfortunate kind of target in some of the recent like big tech layoffs that have been all over the news because they went kind of like hiring crazy during COVID. Um, but it's still a very useful field. It's also very profitable. Like the salaries <laughs> are pretty good. Uh, like, you know, there's uh, a lot of like, uh, especially for women, as we know, a lot of the research, like women don't negotiate as well. They tend to make less, like we know that data. So there's a lot of like uh, crowdsource spreadsheets for increasing pay transparency and stuff. So I think there's a lot of good conversations outside of academia in terms of ways that you can really make a very comfortable living with your skill sets and still applying a lot of the knowledge that you've learned, especially if you're a psychologist or social scientist, good chance you studied some aspect of human behavior in some degree you probably know a lot about human behavior and can apply them. So like these user research areas are really, really helpful. Um, the area that I love and, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't want to go into tech because I don't want to sell out and sell my soul to the corporate things. And, you know, people complain about that a lot. Well, guess what? There's this whole area of nonprofits that are trying to do mission oriented and impact focused work to help our world go help Yay. the world. <laughs> Yay. Like go help the world, like go make an impact. Um, so that's the space that I've been working in. Like I wanted to stay in education. Like I, I'm passionate about education. I think there's a lot of problems. We complain, we can complain the best about the things that we know 
the best, I think, in my opinion. Um, so I can complain about education a lot, but there's a lot of, I think, ways that we can help reform and make education even better um, for people individually, you know, the return on it, their experience in it. Um, and also just as an institution, because I think it's probably one of the most important institutions that we have in our country. Um, and I think it's really helpful to make them better. So, you know, you can work in the nonprofit field. Those jobs have been great for me because typically nonprofits are smaller teams. Like you kind of wear a lot of hats. Um, if anyone has ever <laughs> followed me or like looked at my CV, you can see that I wear a lot of hats. Like I like doing a lot of things. Um, so for me, it's actually, it feels like a better fit to my skill set because I get to do a whole bunch of stuff every day because I work on small teams. I get to learn all new things, kind of play a bunch of different roles. Things move really fast, which Can you give me better. Some examples of like what would uh, a morning or a day look like in terms <laughs> of the different kinds of things that you do? Yeah. I mean, for me, so I'm, as I mentioned earlier, director of communications and marketing for Heterodox Academy. So my week looks like writing content, you know, so we have like our research reports and stuff. So my research background works really well in nonprofit communications because we have a lot of data and research that we need to sift through and like make sense of and be able to write about in a way that most of our audience isn't necessarily going to be reading a research article. So I get to write a lot of content. Um, I've been learning how to design, you know, like, uh, you know, like graphic kind of design, um, because the reports also need to look pretty. We don't just put them in Word documents and like call it a day. Um, so we have to make it look cool. Um, I run all of our social media accounts. Um, so even though I'm not on Twitter personally, I am on Twitter because I'm <laughs> running all of the social media accounts for the organization. Um, so I get to kind of experiment with social media and like the algorithms and like trying to figure out what works well and, you know, just kind of figuring out new tools in that way. Um, I run all of our PR media stuff. So I'm writing our press releases, pitching out to media, pitching out to reporters, you know, doing a lot of media writing for different folks. Um, and then we also just have a lot of different programs and things going on. So again, a small team. So everyone kind of contributes into other areas. Um, I'll be helping put on different events as we kind of get things up and rolling for this year. Um, write all of our newsletters, all of our email communications. So like all this stuff, like I didn't learn how to work these programs. I didn't learn about email marketing or social media marketing, content creation, any of this stuff in grad school. Like I learned this all on the job. Um, but it was just like, you kind of take a little thing that you're interested in. Um, this was another great piece of advice from Martha that in grad school, she's like, find something you like doing a lot, try to find a job doing that. And then figure out, you know, you do a whole bunch of new things find what you like the most, and then try to find a next job doing that. Um, and that's pretty much what I've kind of been leapfrogging mm -hmm. around since I left. And now I know all of these amazing new skills and programs and things that I never would have learned had I stayed in academia, I don't think so. There's that is so many things. That's so, cool. Okay. And uh, Dave, I don't know about you, but as Nicole was talking, I was like, that's all the things that that we do for zombified media that we don't we don't get paid for. And and students, if you want to come and volunteer to help with zombified media and not get paid and learn all those skills, come join us. So well, so actually, that's that ties into what I was going to ask, because going back to the sort of cult of academia, right, with your different levels, mm -hmm. um, for these sorts of jobs you're talking about, do you have to rise all the way up to the PhD tier? Um, and what if somebody doesn't, you know, want to make that many tithings? Um, yeah. Or you get like a special scarf you can wear when you're at that level. Yeah. Then you can just hang all your robes in your closet and pretend that it's That's worth right. it. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean... 
this is the age old question of like, do you need a PhD? You know, and this question is that do I need a PhD to do communications, content, and marketing? Not a single job that I've ever applied for in this area has asked me for a PhD. I will tell you that. Absolutely. Would I be able to do the job, me, as like the unique holistic package that I present on the job market had I not done a PhD? No, because I learned how to write in my PhD. I learned how to communicate science and research, which, you know, I realized I didn't like conducting the science and research that much, but I love talking about science and research. I love reading about science and research. So for me, had I not gone into a PhD program, like learned statistics, understood how to interpret data, run experiments. And I think that's what's giving me kind of an edge in a lot of ways on the job market in the area that I'm in with no direct experience, (laughs) by the way, like I'm applying for jobs with like zero direct experience, uh, like a year ago when I made this switch. And I was able to do that because of my PhD and like what I learned during my PhD and being a professionally trained researcher. So it's always hard, like for the most part, most non-academic jobs, unless you want to be a faculty member or be like a teacher um, at a university, which most of the time requires a PhD, but honestly, they don't even always require a PhD for you to teach university classes. Um, Most jobs outside of that tenure track aren't going to require a PhD. But, you know, again, you may have learned unique skills. I think there's a lot of unique things that you learn as a PhD student, like critical thinking, a lot of research skills, interpretation of data, and writing skills, communicate basic communication skills, which are really hard to come by <laughs> in the professional world, to be quite honest with you. It's things that you learn. You just have to figure out how do you apply them? How do you package them? Um, but a lot of companies now are looking for PhD trained researchers, like especially in the big tech companies, like they recognize the value of having professional science you know, uh, psychologists, whatever other field in the social sciences, like they recognize the value that comes from someone being able to independently run all this stuff, no coding, no statistics, know how to interpret research. So like, if you want to do like professional research and like be a research scientist, like as your career, like, I think there's still a lot of value into it at the very least, like a master's degree, like a really, you know, stats heavy master's degree, for instance, I think what doesn't really matter is the topic of your research. I don't think that matters as much unless you're really going into like some niche specific area that someone also happens to be doing work in. But I think the skill set of a PhD researcher is highly valuable, even if like the degree requirement on the job ad doesn't state that, which you should just ignore most of job ads anyways. Just as a pro tip. <laughs> just apply for the job. <laughs> if that so, so Nicole <laughs> – in the in the work that you're doing now with Heterodox Academy, um, I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I know like a lot of it is about really encouraging sort of space for people to have conversations, who have different perspectives, and really kind of bringing that into academia. Um, mm-hmm. Could you maybe like give a sh- like a little short like version of like kind of what the goals are and um, you know, like what, I mean, like what kind of de-zombification goals are like maybe part of the <laughs> the mission of uh, Heterodox Academy? I think that'd be, that'd be cool to talk about a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our mission is to improve education and research, and we focus specifically on higher ed now, but include uh, improve education and research 
by advocating for and promoting like our core values, which are viewpoint diversity, open inquiry, and constructive disagreement. And I think this is utterly just valuable and foundational uh, for how we run classrooms, for how we conduct research, and kind of how we operate as academics. Um, because our membership, we're a faculty member organization. We are open to students as well. Um, and we, we've recently opened up to kind of like higher ed staff, like people that may be working in more administrative positions um, as well. But, you know, our core membership is faculty members because the whole point of being at a university is to be able to, you know, think about things curiously, you know, wander into interesting areas. You know, everyone makes fun of academics because we research these like obscure niche topics and we're like, why does this have any relevance to society? Well, sometimes it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't always have to. Sometimes you can just do things because they're interesting and maybe they'll yield something down the road. So most of our great, you know, discoveries of, you know, the past like couple hundred years have come about just spontaneous random applications of things. So what we're really advocating for is making sure that academia doesn't become in your terms, like zombified to like one viewpoint or one perspective as an institution. We're made up of people that are researching all sorts of different things that are teaching about different topics that have all this wild and varied expertise and we want to make sure that that really is kind of the foundation for how classrooms are run, for how research and academic departments are run, to make sure that we value people's different perspectives and their you know, freedom and right to be able to investigate and research interesting topics and things that maybe aren't the norm. Um, and that's hard because academia today has become uh, quite narrow sometimes in topics and areas. Um, and we see this across, you know, the spectrum I've written for this before for heterodox and on one of my sub stacks of like how the academic publishing system really, you know, uh, inhibits impact of work. It really narrows down what topics you can research, um, funding agencies that fund a lot of our research. They have very specific calls of we're interested in these topics. And if you want to research something that's not in those topics, it's really hard to get funding for it. And science is not free. Um, so if we have a academic culture, so starting in our classrooms and our research labs, but you know, branching out more towards the institution, our funding agencies, all these adjacent kind of things that allow academic research and teaching to run, to value viewpoint diversity, open inquiry, and then you know, we're not always going to agree with each other how to constructively talk about things um, that maybe we disagree with and just have interesting conversations. I think that's, you know, really what we're, we're focused on, just making sure that we don't become narrow in our thinking and making sure that things aren't off limits for us to have curious discussions about as professional academics. Are there particular sort of, you know, guidelines or roadmaps that you offer for like helping those things to be like productive conversations and inclusive conversations as opposed to them, you know, getting off the rails like sometimes can happen on Twitter, for example. <laughs> yeah, tw Twitter is an interesting place. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been one of the core of kind of like our content outputs over the last few years. So we have um, our library of tools and resources. A lot of this is like member generated too, because we are a membership organization. We have, I think, when I looked yesterday, over 5,600 faculty uh, and student members of our organization. So we have a lot of member generated content of like, Hey, here's like an interesting class exercise that I tried, you know, to talk about kind of a contentious issue or controversial topic that's happening now. So we have a lot of these like pedagogy uh, resources. We have a spot on our blog. That's all about pedagogy. So people can, um, you know, send in kind of examples of, you know, their different teaching styles and expertise, um, 
to how to teach, you know, you know, tough conversations or tough topics to teach about. Um, and we have recently, uh, back in the fall released like this giant best practices guide that was contributed by a bunch of our members of like for tips and kind of how to's for folks all the way, um, from the top at like administrative and like president level, um, at the university to faculty in their classrooms and even students on campus who want to help like organize. So that's part of our tools and we're kind of like revamping all of our content and approach and everything this year, which I am very excited for. Um, so hopefully we'll be getting even more of that kind of member content out and really be kind of a clearinghouse for uh, members to contribute tips and ideas for cool. other professors. What What would be your top few tips or tricks since uh, <laughs> you're steeped in all this? Ooh, top tricks. I mean, for this is something that um, – my top trick, which maybe I should write up a resource for us uh, on this. But um, one thing that I've done in my classroom, uh, I just recently stopped teaching this semester. So even though I've been out of academia, I still adjunct at our local universities. <laughs> I love being in the classroom. Um, but one of the big tips that I have is, and I, this is really why social media and I mean, this is like a classic psychology effect, but we need to humanize people. Like, remember that we're talking to real people <laughs> with, you know, a real life and personality and conversations and all these different things. Wait, what do you mean? Like when we're talking to them in what context? In the classroom, for example. Um, at least that's where this specific example is going. But um, just remember that we're talking to a person, like a whole human being in front of us. And this is why social media can be such a you know, go off the rails because you're just talking to like user whatever in a profile picture and like you know, you're not talking to them in person. Um, everyone's conversations are going to be much friendlier when you're talking in person. And I think, you know, something that we've shown in our research too is, you know, for the last few years, everyone's been primarily learning online. And this year is kind of the first year that I think things are pretty much back to normal, you know, in terms of in-person uh, teaching and learning. But something we found in our campus expression survey is that, especially during the years of COVID, like the less interaction students have with each other, the more, or they're, the more interaction they have with students, the less likely they are to like have a negative response to them or be less fearful of like talking about things. So like when we actually just interact with other people face to face and have a conversation with them, we are much more mild than like what the news headlines and everything suggests, which wouldn't be, isn't that surprising if you actually have a diverse group of like friends in a social network who don't all agree on everything. Like you can talk to your friends about controversial things and it usually doesn't blow up into like this horrible thing like we see online. Um, so I try to replicate that in my classroom and just trying to humanize the other students in the classroom. Um, because usually like say I've taught, uh, I taught development courses at uh, university and you would have a big lecture hall, like a hundred people. They don't know who they are. They know maybe who the one person is that they came to class with. So I go all the way back to elementary school. They make name tags. Every single student, no matter how big my class is, makes name tags and they have their name tag on their desk. And what happens throughout the semester, one, it's way easier for me because I can't remember everyone's names. <laughs> we did that too in our class. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh. It helps yeah. so much. I'm curious of what, how this works in your class. But in my class, we, especially in the upper level, like seminar discussion courses, we all sit in a circle and people start talking to each other by name. Hey, I disagree with you on this or so-and-so made a good point, you know. Um, I really like what you said here. I want to add to that. And now we remember we're having a conversation with other people, even when we bring up these really contentious topics that are getting all these headlines and everything's divided and polarized and awful. 
it's not when you actually just talk to a person like straight to their face. So we have to like think of ways on campus to humanize people, get more actual interaction going. That's not only like online interaction. Um, and my students bring up all sorts of things. Like I teach in a very interesting area. Um, I'm in Utah. I'm in, I teach down in Provo County, which is probably one of the most religious counties (laughs) in the country. I would say pretty close to it. Um, and I teach about evolution, which on the surface would be a very tense thing, but it's not because my students feel comfortable just bringing up their beliefs and other people's beliefs all within the conversation because we remember that we're human. So, you know, tips like that, like, and that's a the little thing, just make some name tags and like actually use people's names. Um, you know, that's just like one small example, but those are the kind of like tips that we have, like in our best practices guide of mm-hmm. just, you know, little things that we can do in the classroom, for example. It sounds like a lot of it is about just creating a basis of trust, Mm -hmm. right? That you can say what you think, you can bring up an idea that um, it's not a a space where everybody's looking to jump down everybody's throats about things, right? It's like, hey, we just, we want to have a a conversation and and try Mm -hmm. to understand things together. But but then how does that mesh with uh, weeding out the less (laughs) successful students on the way to the top of the cult, right? I mean, shouldn't they feel bad? We should select them out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just by name now, right? Just be like, listen. Just call just them out by name. Or maybe just because have a ceremony where they have to tear up their name tag if they're, and then they're out. It's like Survivor. Like yeah, you just exactly. voted out. You can have a torch. Middle. You just burn their name tag. And so. You've been voted out of the discussion. Circle. No more for you. Prove um, you're not a zombie to stay in class. That's a... Uh, Oh. We we do that actually literally we did that today oh. so yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome uh, you know, so, I, oh, go oh go ahead oh no I was just going to ask just sort of going back to this sort of combination of the cult right that sort of mm-hmm. weeds out people and trying to create diverse viewpoints mm-hmm. like are those how do we intertwine those how do we yeah. The million dollar question. I don't have the right answer for you. I can provide definitely my perspective on this. So, I mean, the again, higher education is a very hierarchical space, right? Um, so we have, you know, really prestigious universities that are putting out the bulk of like the research and faculty output um, as well. And then we also, and correlated with that are universities that are very exclusionary, right? Like by definition, they only admit, you know, a few percentage points of their students. And so there's a large sector of higher ed that explicitly like weeds people out, um, which is really interesting. It's like most of us who've done PhDs, we come from a research university that's usually like selective in some way, you know, somewhat competitive in that environment just because that's what research universities do. They produce PhDs. Um, But I actually have been teaching for the last few years at community colleges and open access colleges, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. Like it's not the university that I went to, But what I love about the broad access university, um, Utah Valley, where I was teaching at for the last few years, anyone can come in. You have a much more diverse mix of students in community colleges and broad access universities. You have adult students that are coming back, especially for me as I was teaching night classes because I still have a day job. So like, you know, I'm teaching at night when a lot of adults are coming back. There's a lot of working students. Like, the diversity of background and perspective in those classrooms compared to when I was teaching at the research university was so apparent. And what was really interesting was that the research university students are there to like 
I need to get this grade because this is what, you know, you're supposed to do. I need to pass my class so I can get this and get into grad school or whatever school they're trying to go to. And it's such a competitive environment focused on what's the right answer and how do I get there? And then we're at these broad access universities and everyone's there obviously still, they're like, hey, I'm trying to advance, you know, my career or, you know, I'm interested in going to this, but it's such a less competitive environment. And it's an environment where everyone's just really interested in like learning about each other. Um, in my students last semesters, we have um, a lot of uh, LDS students, obviously, at the university. And what's really interesting is they they go on their missions and they have all these really interesting like experiences to share in class. Um, they obviously have very interesting perspectives on like family and child rearing because we're teaching a development class. And that's why I've really committed to teaching at community colleges and broad access because we have such a diversity of types of students that come in there compared to like my one experience at a research university. And I think there's something there in my perspective. I am kind of on the colleges for everyone. Like, you know, it isn't just, it doesn't only have to be a place where like you go to get a job. Like it should be a place where you go to talk about interesting things and learn stuff. And that's mostly why I read so much now is just because I'm just there to learn about things. So I think there, there's a correlation there in so, my personal so, perspective. So, so, to, so to f- to keep going with that, because I, I kind of like what you're saying. Um, is there a way to sort of bring more broad access students up to the top of the the academic cult? Yeah. Then we get into the issue of all the K-12 inequity in the K-12 school system. So we really dive down a whole rabbit hole. But I think a lot of the issues with kind of who makes it to the top and just kind of who bubbles to the top of like our academic hierarchy in higher education is a manifestation of a lot of, um, inequities that happen at the K-12 level as well. But definitely in higher ed, I would love to see us kind of move towards a more open approach to higher ed. Um, there's obviously trade-offs. There's, there's not a solution to everything. There's only trade-offs to things, but I think that's what makes us higher education really helpful in a lot of ways is because we have such a diversity of types of institutions. But I think there's a lot of things that we can improve on to make one college a space that more people can access um, and have that college and intellectual experience that comes with like, you know, good courses and good higher ed. Um, But we also, there's trade-offs when it comes to like innovation and like having these cutting edge places and things like that. There's a lot of impacts for how we teach, how we approach teaching, like how we structure higher ed. And so much of higher ed is just like a carryover from like 18th and 19th century models that we started with. Like it's such this like inaccessible labyrinth of like intersecting. There's so much stuff, but yeah, I'm more on the college for everyone. Let's have a good time and learn about things. But I also recognize (laughs) the trade-offs. Like I'm not fully naive on that. Um, But yeah, I think there's a lot of discussions to be had. Yeah, I think we can do a lot of those things at the same time, you know? I mean, like, uh, I mean, yes, there are certain, like, complex conversations that, you know, require some background or some understanding of, you know, how evolutionary biology works or chemistry or, right? Like, so there's certain, like, things that you can't drill down on without a bunch of expert knowledge. But then Mm. there's so many topics that really anybody can engage on because they're a human who's experienced things in life and has, you know, perspectives to bring to the table. And some of those questions are the most important questions for now, right? That like we're trying to grapple with as a society. So I think there's for sure room for, you know, doing all of those things within the context of increasing accessibility. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely agree. Yeah. 
Okay, since we're 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 approaching the end of mm-hmm. our of our time, I have to ask um, mm-hmm. our our question. Also, it's been you know we, we've been kind of like talking about somewhat optimistic things, so like we got to just talk about the apocalypse <laughs> for a minute. So, sure. um, <laughs> so uh, the question, Nicole, is what is like the version of. Um, the academic apocalypse like if we take all the ways that people are zombified by academia you know whether it's grad students inside academia professors inside academia students that are inside the system maybe not really understanding the bigger context of what they're trying to navigate and you take all that zombification and you turn it up to 11 or you amplify it right it's like we're like way more zombified by all these things in academia what kind of apocalypse is that? Like, what does that look like? I think for me, hopefully this answers, but I think for me, like probably the most depressing outcome for higher ed would be, maybe that's my personal perspective on what the apocalypse looks like for higher ed, is if we dilute higher ed into being only a job training enterprise. And I think that would be really sad for a lot of reasons. I, You know, I think there's this there's a distinct difference between education and learning. You know, those are two different things. Like we can learn and we learn all the time without education. And I think that's a lot of folks' perspective of like, oh, it's YouTube University. Now you can learn anything online, whatever. Like there's no value to college. We just need it to credential what you know so we can put it on our job resume and get a job. And I think that is such a sad view of higher ed. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of, there is that push of like, we need a return on investment. Like there's no purpose to um, invest, you know, federal and state funding in our higher education institutions. If people are getting art history, always gets thrown in here, but an art history degree and there's no job left after, like, what's the point? Um, And I think that would be really sad (laughs) um, if people only equated learning with like a job credential. Um, And I think a lot of trends in higher ed are kind of pushing that because, and part of this is just because of the cost crisis of higher ed. Like it's, wildly expensive. Um, but people should be able to go to higher ed and study obscure topics. Like that is the beauty of higher ed. They should be able to go to education, study topics they're curious about and not necessarily be so zombified into this idea that everything I learn must be applicable to a job. And the only reason I'm at university is to get the grades, get the credentials and get the job. Um, and I wrote something about this in Inside Higher Ed back in the fall of like uh, rising rising tuition killed intellectual curiosity. And I think all of this stuff happening in higher ed, and you know, worried that we might continue too far on that. And higher ed is just that job training enterprise, like where higher ed should be the place that, like, what a privilege it was in graduate school to be able to sit around, <laughs> not make much money, but that's fine. But to have just like a full time space to just think about stuff that like didn't matter in air quotes because it's not applicable to anything. Um, so my apocalypse of higher ed is just higher ed is a job training enterprise that we just are credentialing and paying for rather than a space to widely and curiously explore ideas and science and arts and all these different things. And that's what it should be for. And we should fund that. That should be funded for publicly because that one makes our nation more beautiful because more people with more interesting ideas are there. We're not just plugging into job requirements, which sounds really 
gray and <laughs> boring. And that's where innovation comes from. We don't innovate by trying to check off boxes. Like we innovate by applying different ideas in different ways and coming up with interesting thoughts while reading something completely unrelated or having these conversations or being in classrooms that are dedicated to intellectual curiosity. So that'd be my yeah. apocalypse of higher ed. Well, it sounds almost like you're also sort of like advocating for like almost like a like a universal human right to have space to explore ideas and to try to understand the world and that that should be something that we proactively make space for. I mean, it it mm -hmm. really is like a, a call for a certain kind of like zombification free space, right? It's like, yeah. here, let's have a space where we can think about what, you know, the topics that we're interested in, that we're curious about, the things that we think are actually important mm -hmm. in the world. I mean, I, I wonder about this all the time, Nicole, of like, you know, like, so I have two teenagers and then, you know, I'm teaching students all the time and there's this like level of distraction that has just been increasing as the world has been getting more and more fucked up. And sometimes I'm like, you know, like on a certain level that makes sense that like you should be more distracted when like there's all this shit going on that your brain is like, should I be paying attention to this and this and this? Or should I be, you know, like trying to understand this chemistry right now? Like mm. it, it kind of makes sense that, you know, students would be more distracted when there's shit going on in the world that it would be good to understand because it might be relevant for your survival and the continued survival of humanity, you know, like yeah. <laughs> it could be important. <laughs> yeah, there are some, these things are important. So and yeah, having these dedicated spaces, like everyone should be able to pursue a higher education if they want to um, and have the ability to do so and have access to great instructors and faculty and peers to explore those ideas in those dedicated spaces. And we've created them. We have this massive, complex, imperfect institutional system of higher education. And also, you can find all sorts of different things. And I think the complexity and diversity of our higher education system as much as it's responsible for so many of the faults that we usually compare to like other country systems, especially in Europe, um, of their higher education systems. It's also why ours is kind of the greatest in the world as well is because we have this beautiful, messy system, but there's still ways to improve it. We can still have a diverse, messy system of higher ed while not costing like the rest of your young life to pay off, you know? Right. And, well, and that's yeah. the paradox, right? Is like, you know, then we're kind of back to like, well, how do you pay for it? How do you make it's it an possible? Investment. It's not a cost. It's an investment, not a cost. On the kind unlike as a public good, like you think yeah. it should just be it should be paid for a, by the yeah. government. Definitely more than it is. Yeah. It's a public good perspective. It's a investment in our country and the development of all of our citizens and people who want to come here and learn in our higher education system. It's an investment, not necessarily a, like a cost, you know? Um, so I think education should be a public good. Everyone should have access to it. And So I have, I don't know if we're actually going to have time to discuss this topic, but I'm just, <laughs> as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking back with the art history, right? And I, yeah. I had a, a film production background, which is, you know, I have a MFA. Um, and I talk to Athena about this sometimes where I'm like, no, I kind of wish somebody had sort of steered me towards something a little more practical, <laughs> right? And so I guess the flip side that I would want to know at, at some point is, do we, do educational institutions have a responsibility to gear people towards 
You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of times, going back to what we were saying with the cult, people think whatever you major in is going to be your career forever, Mm. right? Yeah. Um, So. Yeah, I think um, the reason that there's been so much push on institutions to have responsibility for ROI or return on investment is a big thing of like, hey, if you're going to spend $50,000 for an undergraduate degree or $50,000 a year, depending on what school you're going to, it better pay off. And that's where it's not like one thing or another. We need to bring the cost down so that there's less pressure to have that return on investment um, in a economic career monetary sense. Because like if you went to get your uh, undergraduate degree in, you know, uh, in arts, uh, Maybe you're interested in that being your full-time career, maybe not. But if you didn't just dump a hundred grand into it and needed a job to start paying off those loans, you'd be less concerned with it in that way. And you could actually just maybe enjoy the intellectual experience of learning about something and also trying to, you know, figure out your career, you know, maybe in parallel. And that's a whole nother area too. I think we do, and this goes along with PhD students as well. I think we do a terrible job at like career advisement and like advisement for students in terms of what to do in education because we do have, if we want this complex, messy, diverse, higher ed system thing that we have going on here, we need to do a lot better to help people navigate it in a way that makes sense for them um, while also making it not cost, you know, an arm and a leg to go explore something that you're interested in. Because that would suck. (laughs) I totally agree. I really hope you're going to run for office because (laughs) I think that this would be a great platform. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Invest in education, yeah. We'll yeah. Need to a few things to get on that ticket, but uh, <laughs> yeah. do we want to ask about the best case scenario, the, yeah. the utopia? Yeah, <laughs> I think um, I think the best case scenario version um, is probably written about um, pretty well. Uh, my view is pretty aligned with John Warner's view. He wrote a book called Sustainable, Resilient, and Free, um, and he lays out a really good case for a publicly funded. Um, higher education system and like what that would look like. And I actually wrote a response on my Substack after of like, okay, but what about the research part? Because he's super focused on education, which is obviously the core of our institutions. Um, but we have this big messy <laughs> system as well. And our institutions are also a place of innovation and, um, and research. And, you know, that helps advance us as a nation as well. Um, so I think having a view where colleges near free or very, very low cost, like, you know, back in the day when people were like, oh, you just work a summer job and, you know, you can pay off your tuition. We need to get back to that, uh, where it's like reasonable, it's a reasonable cost to pay um, while really centering our institutions on education. Um, so right now, and this is a platform that I've always advocated for in higher ed as well, is we should have separate tracks of professors, one for teaching, one for research. A lot, there are the golden few that are excellent teachers and excellent researchers, but to be honest, most of the researchers I talk to, like teaching's a time suck. You know, oh, I haven't updated my slides and we're still using only slides. You know, like I haven't updated my slides because of my research and, you know, teaching. We, we incentivize that. Like, oh, you're a journal editor. You can get a course buyout. Like taking away teaching duties is seen as like an incentive for researchers. And that should that should be fine. Like some people, if they really want to do both and can do both well, then fine. So be it. But we should have, in some, the UC system does this pretty well, or at least better than other systems I've seen. They have teaching professors and research professors. So both are tenure track, both are, you know, in that line. But the tenure track teaching professors focus on teaching full time and they're actually 
paid in parallel with the research professors and not just the lecturers at the lower rank. Um, and I think separating those job duties, because if you look at the job duties that you have as a research and research for researcher and a teacher, those are a lot of different jobs. And like, why should we expect researchers to be the same exact skill set as great teachers? It doesn't make sense to me. So I think a really low cost or mostly publicly funded um, higher education system, um, kind of separating out kind of different jobs for teaching and research so we can still uh, fix research innovation. And then whole thing that we probably don't have time to get into on this time, but just like the incentives around researching and publication and funding and and, you know, that whole area as well to help uh, make sure our research is having the most impact as possible. But that'd be my uh, small utopia version. Yeah. And then the students are all coming to class, sharing their thoughts and feeling <laughs> safe nice. <laughs> to, you know, trust everybody in class. And and then the students come up with the ideas that end up uh, saving the world. Yeah. And so, maybe it's idealistic. That's fine you know, we don't want to be naive that there's not trade-offs and costs and all those things that come along with it, but we should still be striving to work towards something rather than just complaining about it or just being like, Oh, that's the way it is. And we can't fix anything. I don't think that's a good approach either. Yeah. You know, and I, I mean, I was kind of tongue in cheek, but I do genuinely think that like, we're not going to figure out how to deal with the crazy problems that we have in the world without having young people at the table too. We can't just be like, oh, us who have studied all of these complex things for so long that we can't even talk to people who haven't studied what we know are going to figure things out. It's like, "Mm, no, like, you know, we need to be in teams and we need to have like people at the table who understand like how memes are affecting the world. I was just talking to Dave about this. I'm like, I don't understand how like what is going on like in the you know meme world that my kids inhabit and like I need the students in our class to teach me so that I can be culturally competent and understand the world um so I I do think that like you know a lot of times we sort of uh like have this attitude that the the transmission of information only goes from the old to the young but Mm. sometimes it goes the other way because there's all sorts of crazy cultural stuff happening you know, among young people that is important, you know, like it, yeah. it's, we can't just be like, oh, that's just, you know, those, those silly young kids doing their silly kid things. Like, mm-hmm. no, like there's, no. there's there are important things it. going on there. Yeah. Exactly. And that tension yeah. between kind of the young generations and the older generations is also super productive for like driving things forward, but it's a good tension. Like it's a good friction that we have there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all very complex, yeah. <laughs> obviously, but I think, you know, we should always be striving to improve things and uh, rather than just kind of throwing your hands up. And yeah. The yeah. Natural way any, that it is like, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any last, <laughs> any last thoughts for, for our, our listeners about how to not be zombified by the cult of academia? <laughs> I mean, my go-to is just read, <laughs> read things. So, you know, I'm not a student anymore. Um, I don't teach anymore. I'm scared of <laughs> like losing touch with like innovations and things that are going on. So I always read. Um, I'm a big reader, obviously. You mentioned earlier, I have a bookmark read Substack where I share all the books that I read. So I read nonfiction because the real world is super interesting um, and we have a lot to learn about the real world. So I read a lot, try to read as widely and diversely as possible and all sorts of different topics. So that's kind of my personal uh, approach to avoiding being a zombie. I love that. So either read widely or just read Nicole's Substack about all of the books that she has read and <laughs> you get the summary. That's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> so more well, efficient way. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us on this episode of Zombified. Thank you so much for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. And if the whole world says that we're cool, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media. And we would like to thank everyone in this cult who helped make today's episode possible. Including the Department of Psychology at ASU. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative at the President's Office at ASU. The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics of Cults. (laughs) And all the... um, I'm trying to think of what you would call like members of cults, just members, right? All the braids Mm -hmm. of all the cult members that we've indoctrinated to help us make this episode. I mean, you definitely have a cult leader vibe, Dave. I mean, I think officially there was a point where I had a cult. I mean, you had two members, including yourself. No, no, Pam joined before. No, wait, Pam joined after I gave it. I I stepped down. Yeah, and gave it to Neil. And then Pam joined. Yeah. If you if you don't know what we're talking about right now, um, go and and watch all of the uh, <laughs> all of Zam twenty twenty two where the the whole story unfolded of Dave. What was the slogan for your cult? It was chaos you can believe in. Chaos you so can believe in. It was, a, yeah. it was a good cult. So a little chaotic though. It's too chaotic to maintain itself. I think. Um. I mean, I, I still I still believe. I still think we're we're out there. <laughs> oh, okay anyway so speaking of which um, i'm gonna jump uh to neil smith who is the illustrator and he led the cult for so, how long a full more than me i think he led it for two days or okay. a day and a half all yeah. right <laughs> neil thank you for your service <laughs> yes <laughs> and for making all these awesome illustrations. I mean, all the time. Yes. You, you really have animated animated this, you know, this reanimated world. I don't, I don't know. The, I was trying to make some, some zombie joke about reanimation. 
Okay, got it. Who's there? <laughs> so, um, yes. Also, lots of other brains. Lots of other brains have helped to make this podcast, like Tal Ram, who does our our sound and may edit out all all of this because we're kind of being rambly right now. Maybe I don't know. Or he might just let it ride and just yeah. be like, whatever. If, if they don't want rambling. The audience has come to the wrong place. <laughs> and uh, and then Lemmy. Yeah, the song. Yeah, so. the song psychological. The creator of the song. I I love the song. I, a, it really it makes it seem like we're not just going to ramble. Like it seems like we know what we're up to. When yeah, you hear that song. It so does. thanks, Lemmy. Yeah. So <laughs> and and thanks to our Z team, all the students that help um, to support everything we do with Zombified and um, with Channel Z and. Yeah, we're we're just we're really lucky. We've got an amazing, yeah. does amazing the Z team. team include because you said the students. Does it also include Christina and Nicole, the other Nicole? Yeah, we should thank them. Yeah, they do a lot, they so. Do a, lot a lot. So, so yeah, thank you. thank you, Christina Baccio and Nicole Hudson. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, Twitter. Oh, yes. Back to Twitter. Twitter. Back to Twitter. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter at Zombified Media or on Instagram um, or on Facebook if you're still in Facebook. Do we have a Substack? Let's keep hearing Substacks are all the rage. Uh, We don't have a Substack, but Nicole. um, uh, Nicole B has a Substack. Nicole B has a Substack. Colton Scrivener has a Substack about morbid curiosity, so you could check that out. Right. Um, Stephen Beschloss has a Substack about America and democracy that is really good. You know, he was on previous so episodes. Do we have a mammoth? Is that a thing? Is that a, is we that? we don't have mammoth, no, we don't but, have but I, no, we got to get with it, Athena. <laughs> we are not hip to the social media trends gosh i think that falls on you dave to follow the newest social media trends it's gonna fall pretty far (laughs) (laughs) um, you could also come to our website yeah we're old school we have a website we do have a website so we've got zombifiedmedia.org right yep and then zombified.org which is just for the podcast two websites we have so many websites you guys should go to both there's yeah we have a lot of websites we have a lot but no substack no mammoth it's just so sad (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right but uh go there buy t-shirts and then if you see another person wear that t-shirt you could say hey i know what that t-shirt is and they'll be like cool and they'll think you're cool yeah yeah that's that's the main reason to to do it is because it'll make you look cool yeah it's like you're part of the cool cult that's right yes yeah in fact we have we have shirts that say zombified media, not a cult. Really? No, we don't, but we should. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we got to check if that's true. <laughs> I feel like there's a law about putting lies on a t <laughs> um. Well, thank you all for sharing your brains with us by actually paying attention to this all the way until the end. I mean, those of you who are still with us, you're amazing because we've just been rambling. Or you're asleep. You guys, you fell asleep halfway through the episode because they do what I do, which is listen to things while they're trying to fall asleep. And now they're just, they're having a weird dream about a podcast that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is 
There's something supernatural with you 